Well, here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been revealing to his disciples what it really means to follow him. We've noted that you know, they kind of had a, a wrong concept of what that was. And he already told them, you know, if you want to be my disciples, you need to deny yourself. That self isn't supposed to be the focus anymore. That you take up your cross, that you die to yourself daily and follow me. Well, now here at the end of chapter 9, we're going to see two more things that Jesus shares about being his disciple, about being a follower of him. But we're also going to see three things that hinder us from following Jesus, three things that really are one of the big problems that keep people from being those disciples that Jesus wants them to be. So these verses are going to be very practical, uh, very applicable to us as we look at two things that we should do to follow him and three things that we should be aware of that often keep us from following him. So let's start with the two things that we see about following Jesus. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51, uh, says this. There we go. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So Luke starts off telling us that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This word steadfastly here in the Greek means to make firm, to fix oneself, to have your mind set on something. And so Jesus is fixed on, his mind is set on going to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, chapter 9, we've already seen some things about what Jesus has told the disciples about what's coming in Jerusalem. In verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chiefs and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. In verse 44, he said, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of men. And so when Luke says Jesus has fixed his mind, his heart, going to Jerusalem, ultimately it's going there for the purpose of dying. He's going to Jerusalem to give his life. Jesus was firmly fixed on that. He was firmly fixed on the mission of why he came to give his life for the sins of the world. And nothing was going to keep him from that. You know, I think this shows an amazing amount of courage in Jesus. You know, there are really two different types of courage. First, there's the courage of the moment, which really requires no previous thought. Something suddenly happens like a child runs out into the road and you don't even think. You just run out there in the midst of the traffic, in the midst of the cars, in the midst of the dangers and you just grab that child. It's just this courage that happens at the spare of the moment. There's not a, a thinking before it. And, and, and that's one aspect of courage. But there's a second uh, aspect of courage and that's planned courage. Planned courage which sees the difficulty ahead and still marches towards it. It's a courage that knows the difficulties coming and knows the hardships are coming and still sees that and marches towards it, goes towards it, heads towards it. You know, many soldiers have this kind of courage. They know that when they get into that battle, that the enemy that they're fighting wants to kill them. They know that it's likely that they die. They know that there's lots of bad things that are probably going to happen. They know it's there, and yet they still march towards it. They still head towards it, even first recognizing the danger that awaits them. Jesus had this kind of courage. 
He knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. He knew death was coming. He knew he would be betrayed. He knew that he would be tortured and killed. But nothing was going to keep Jesus from accomplishing the ministry that he came for, which was to die for our sins. You know, this courage, this obedience, this commitment that Jesus shows here is a great example to us. It's an example of how we should approach what God has called us to do. You know, Jesus told his disciples a lot of things that they needed to follow. But you know what? He also demonstrated a lot of things as well. You know, we look at Jesus' teaching and we see, oh, he, he taught the disciples, you know, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me. But so much of his teachings weren't in words. It was a demonstration of his own life and saying, you want to know what it's like to follow me? Here, I'll show you how to be like me. I'll show you in my lifestyle and the way in which I live. And so, so much of being Jesus' disciple is not just through what he taught, but it's also we learn through what he did. And this is one of those instances where we learn something about how to follow Jesus through the example that Jesus set in his own life. That courage, that obedience, that commitment to accomplish the ministry that God gives us, no matter what difficulty comes our way, no matter what hardship comes our way, that we say, you know what, I'm going to still continue to do what God has called me to do. You know, probably one of the, besides Jesus, people in the Bible that that people look to as a great example is Paul. And Paul really, I think, took on board the same heart that Jesus has of, you know what, there's nothing that's going to stop me from completing the mission that God has given to me. And Paul says some very strong, powerful words in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 22 through 24. He says this, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, you know what, I know something's awaiting me. Actually, the Holy Spirit spoke through people to say, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, chains and tribulation await you. This difficulty awaits you. Possibly death awaits you. You And people are telling him, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. If that's what awaits you, Paul, don't do it. And he says, none of these things move me. The difficulties that are coming, the hardships that are coming, those things are not going to move me from going and completing what God has called me to do. And Paul gives us two reasons why. Why they're not going to move him. He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. The first reason why Paul didn't get moved is he says, I don't count my life dear to myself. He understood that being Jesus' disciple was something that you deny yourself. You die to yourself. It's not about me and living for me. It's about Jesus and living for him. And so he says, you know what? I don't count my life dear to myself. And that's why I'm not going to let these things that are coming move me from completing what Jesus has called me to do. But the second reason Paul says was because he wanted to finish his race with joy. He wanted to finish what Jesus had given him to finish. And that ministry was to preach the gospel of grace. Paul had a huge heart for Jews, a huge heart for those in Jerusalem to hear the gospel. And he says, you know what? I know that change and tribulation await me. I know that difficulty awaits me in Jerusalem. But I also know those people that I want to reach with the gospel are there. And nothing's going to keep me from going and completing that work that God has called me to do. Nothing moved Paul from ministry. First, because he didn't count his life dear to himself. And second, because he wanted to finish what God had called him to do. And the same exact thing could be said about Jesus. 
Nothing was going to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem and dying on the cross because first and foremost, he didn't count his life dear to himself. Because if he did, he surely wouldn't be doing that. He's not going to give his life if he counted his life dear to himself, but also he wanted to finish what the Father had given him to accomplish. Jesus set the example of being courageous, obedient, and committed to the Father, even to the point of death. Paul followed that example as well. And the reality is, for us as followers of Jesus, that's what God wants from us, that we would take on that challenge to say, I'm going to be courageous and obedient and committed to what you've given us. And the reality is, we're going to face hardships in the midst of it all. I don't know what this thing's doing. I don't even know where it is. It's supposed to be... There it is. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. One of those great promises that we don't like to put on you know, sticky notes and put across our room. But you know, here's the truth. When you live for Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. There are going to be all sorts of things that are going to come into your life, and those things really are going to be things that could move you can move you from serving the Lord, move you from spending time with the Lord, move you from continuing to do ministry that the Lord has given you. Paul says, you know what? None of these things are going to move me from going to Jerusalem. Jesus ultimately shows in his actions, nothing's going to move me from going to Jerusalem and give my life. He made a choice not to allow the horrible death that was coming, the horrible suffering that was coming, move him from what God had called him to do. And the question I want us to ask ourselves is, what would move you? What would move you? What would hinder you? What would stop you from continuing to follow the Lord? What would hinder you? What would move you from spending time with the Lord? From continuing to do the ministry that God has given you to do? If you lost someone that you deeply love, would that move you? If you lost your job and became poor, would that move you? If you lost your health, would that move you? If you lost something that you greatly value, would that move you? If you can think of something in your life that if you lost it, it would move you from following God, move you from continuing to pursue what God has given you to do, then that thing is more dear to you than it should be. Because it's more dear to you ultimately than your relationship with God. It's more dear to you than following God. You know, when I was 13... My grandmother, she lived with us for the majority of my life. I was very close with her. Uh, she got diagnosed with cancer, and my parents said, you know what, don't worry about it. God's going to heal her. And I believed that, and she kept digressing and getting worse and worse, and we just kept praying and saying, you know what, God's going to heal her. It's okay. And then finally, my grandmother died. And her death definitely moved me in my relationship with God. I was told, you know, God's going to heal her. My focus was God's going to heal her. And she wasn't healed. And all of a sudden, I was moved. I'm thinking, I'm mad at you, God. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to spend time in prayer. I don't want to spend time in the Word. I don't want to do these things. I was moved because I blame God for not healing my grandma. I let my grandma's death move me. And it really was years before I ever got right with God again. I just continued to rebel more and more. And that was kind of the starting point of that. Years later, I realized that my relationship with my grandma, my relationship with my family was more important to me than my relationship with God. And that's why I allowed her death to move me from following him. You know, years later, Jenny and I were married. We wanted to start having a family. We started trying to have kids and uh, we had two miscarriages. And after the second miscarriage, 
you know, I was very frustrated, uh, very, you know, just saddened and heartbroken. And, you know, we wanted to have kids so much and, you know, we get pregnant and we were so excited and we tell family and friends and, you know, then a little bit of time goes by and you pretty much, you know, have the agony of finding out that you lose the baby and it gets even worse because now you have to call all those family and all those friends and, and express to them what has happened. And we just went through this twice and I remember right after that second miscarriage, as I was just upset and spending time in the Word, I came to Acts, this passage where Paul says, none of these things move me. I remember the Lord was really challenging me, is this going to move you? Is this going to move you with what I've called you to do in ministry? Is this going to move you in my relationship with you? Is this going to move you in your desire to spend time with me? Because back when I was 13, I allowed my grandma's death to definitely move me, and now I was at another opportunity of, here, are you going to allow these deaths to move you? And I was able to make a choice at that point in the time to say, no, I'm not going to. Because my relationship with God now had become something that was the most important thing for me. And so I could say, no, I'm not going to allow this to move me, not allow this tragedy to move me. The challenge that Jesus gives here through his example is be obedient, be courageous, be committed to God no matter what comes our way. If we want to be his disciple, we want to be his follower, hey, we need to... No matter what comes, no matter if it's difficulty or death, be willing to continue with what Jesus gives us, not allowing difficulties to move us from following what he's called us to do. So Jesus, he steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's firmly fixed on it. He's not going to let anything move him from what his calling, his mission was. And as they're journeying towards Jerusalem, we discover they come through this Samaritan village. But we're told that the people in the village, they didn't receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Because he was fixed on going to Jerusalem, these Samaritans, they wouldn't receive him. They didn't want him there. Now you think, well, why would they care? Well, why is it that they're upset that Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem? Why would that make them say, well, get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you anymore. Well, you've got to understand a little bit about the Samaritans to understand why Jesus being fixed and focused on going to Jerusalem would be a problem for them. First and foremost, how did the Samaritans come about? Well, if you remember through the nation of Israel when it was established, God told the nation of Israel not to intermarry with other nationalities because they didn't worship God. And so they would bring idol worship into the nation of Israel. So they were commanded not to do that. Well, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered Israel, and they purposely brought foreigners in there to dwell with the Jews in the nation of Israel. And the Jews naturally started to disobey God and marry those foreigners and those married... Uh, uh, so we have Assyrians or other nationalities and Jews marrying. And the children that they had were then half Jewish, half Gentile, referred to as Samaritans. Uh, and so this was the start of this uh, race of Samaritans. But it made it even worse that the Samaritans then decided to take the writings of the Jews, the Mosaic law, and to change some things. They changed the places that Abraham offered Isaac that was on Mount Moriah in Israel, and they changed it to Mount uh, Gerizim in Samaria. The feasts were all celebrated in Samaria instead of in Jerusalem. And so now there's even greater conflict. It's not just that you know, you're half Jewish, half Gentile, and you're worshiping other gods. You've changed you know, our sacred writings as well. So because of all this, the Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. Actually, in fact, most Jews would walk around Samaria, even though it was quicker to go through Samaria to get to the northern part of Israel. They'd go around it because they didn't even want to step foot 
in this place that they had such a uh, problem with these people. And the Samaritans, they reciprocated those feelings. They hated the Jews, and so there was this conflict. And so when Jesus comes to Samaria, at first they're probably quite taken back. Why is, the, why is this Jew and his Jewish disciples even walking in our country? Wow, this is great. But then all of a sudden they hear, oh, he's fixed on going to Jerusalem. He's just passing through, and his destination is not Samaria. His destination is Jerusalem. And that was a problem because... Their big issue was, where's the right place to worship God? You see, they changed the old ancient writings to say the right place to worship God is in Samaria, not Jerusalem. And so there was this conflict in saying, well, if you're going to go there, then obviously you're one of those Jews that believe that the right place to worship God is in Jerusalem. If you remember, we have another instance where Jesus is in Samaria in the John's Gospel. He meets the woman at the well. I find interesting, the one question that she asks as she has this debate with Jesus is she says, Our father said you should worship God here on this mountain in Samaria, but you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. Ultimately asking the question, Jesus, where is it that you're supposed to worship God? And then he responds with, well, soon, you know, neither, you know, we worship God in spirit and truth. But she's bringing up this issue of, hey, you guys are claiming it's Jerusalem. Us Samaritans claim it's here in Samaria. Which one is it? Because she's bringing up, this is the big problem that Jews and Samaritans have with one another. And so as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, that's the issue. That's why the Samaritans say, well, forget you then. If you're not going to be here, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, if you think that, then we don't want you. Now, the big issue here is the response of two of Jesus' disciples. Notice James and John. So Jesus gets rejected. The Samaritans are basically, get out of our country. We don't want you here anymore. And notice how James and John respond to this in verse 54. We're told, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? James and John's response here is quite harsh. (laughs) There's really no compassion in it at all. Jesus These guys just rejected you and us, and do you want us to just command fire to come down from heaven and just wipe all these Samaritans off the planet? You know, is that what you want us to do? But notice how Jesus responds to them in verses 55 and 56. He says, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come destroy men's lives, but to save them. James and John get to rebuke here from Jesus. You guys, you don't understand what kind of spirit you're of. The Spirit of God now should be the thing that you're following. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save men's lives. You know, Galatians tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. When the Holy Spirit is inside of you, here's the natural fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. None of those are associated with bringing fire down from heaven to consume people. And so, you know, they didn't have the right spirit. Jesus is saying, you don't know what I'm all about. I'm not here to destroy people. I'm here to save people. Something Jesus wants James and John and us to understand is being his disciple means having the same heart for people that he did. Jesus' heart was to see people saved, not destroyed. We need to have a heart of compassion for people, not a heart of destruction for people. You know, I'm pretty confident James and John didn't like the Samaritans because most Jews didn't like Samaritans. Most Samaritans didn't like Jews. And that probably made it a little bit easier because, you know, there was a lot of towns in Israel that rejected Jesus. And you never saw James and John saying, you want us to command fire and consume these guys? Because I think, you know what, they're fellow Jews. We love them. But here's a group of people that we don't love. 
Here's a group of people that we actually hate. And so it makes it a little bit easier to say, hey, Jesus, how about we just consume them with fire and get rid of them altogether? You know, when our government redefined marriage, started persecuting more of our religious freedom, a lot of Christians had plenty to say on Facebook. And a lot of it was basically, let's destroy them. Might as well have been saying, let's send fire down from heaven and consume them. But let's not forget, the people who are doing this, they don't know God. They're not following God. They need Him. And I think, sadly, the Christian response so often is, let's just get rid of these people who are unbelievers and the world will be so much better. Let's get rid of these people who are changing laws that hurt us. Let's get rid of the people that are causing our lives not to be what we want it to be, and everything will be better, instead of, you know what, let's, as the church, be more effective in reaching these people with the gospel, and then things will change. We're not here to destroy them. We're here to share the love of Christ that will save them. And I get saddened by reading a lot of the Facebook posts and just like, man, you know, you'd be better not to post anything, especially Christians. If you're mad, don't come to Facebook and vent. It's not a good witness. So often the mindset is just not the mindset that Jesus had. This world doesn't need us to seek and destroy them. They need us to seek and save them like Jesus did. Now, I'm not saying that we as Christians shouldn't stand up for the truths of the Bible. I think we should tell our culture in the right, proper way that the Bible does say, hey, Marriage is between a man and a woman, not between two men or not between two women. I think we should tell our culture, hey, the Bible clearly says Jesus is the only way to heaven. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the Bible tells us to speak the truth. And a lot of Christians just use that part. Yes, we're supposed to speak the truth, so we'll do it. But they miss the next two words right after it, in love. Speak the truth in love. Do it in a loving way and actually love the people that you're speaking to. And when I read a lot of things, I'm thinking, there's no way you actually love the person that you're writing to in this way. And you might say, well, this is truth. Yes, but it's not in love. And no one ever responds to it. I mean, if the, the purpose should be, I want to speak the truth so that someone can come to know it. And when I don't do it in love, they don't come to know it. When I rant and rave and scream and shout and say all these things, it's not causing someone to say, oh, wow, I really want to accept that and follow what you guys believe. You know, we've got to do it in love. And yes, there's truth that we need to stand for, truth that we need to hold to. But the way in which we present that truth to our culture needs to be in the right way, needs to be in a loving way. And I think too often we don't do that. And we wonder, why don't they want it? Well, I wouldn't want it either if that was presented to me like that. I think our problem oftentimes is we really don't love the people that are lost. We have those people like the Samaritans, and we really don't have any kind, loving feelings towards them, and we're happy to say, Lord, just send fire and consume them, because we'd rather them just be gone than have to try to reach them, because we really don't have much love for them. And so we deal harshly instead of compassionately. We deal cruelly instead of mercifully. And when we do that, Jesus says, you've come with the wrong spirit, with the wrong heart, because the Spirit of God that is dwelling within you should be one that shows love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not destroy them. And if we want to follow Him, we need to do the same. So Jesus has already said, you want to be my disciple? There are several things you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross daily. You need to follow me. But here are two more important things. Be obedient, courageous, and committed to God no matter what comes our way. And seek and save, seek to see people saved, not destroyed. Well, that's all nice, but there are things that often come that hinder us, that, that keep us from following Jesus the way that we should. And we're going to see some encounters now with Jesus and some people that show us some of the things that get in the way that hinder us 
from following Him the way that we should. Verse 57 says this, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that some said to Him, Lord, I will follow You wherever You go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Then He said to another, Follow Me. But He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we see Jesus discussing following him with three different people. And with these three different conversations, we discover three things that hinder people from following Jesus. So Jesus is traveling on the road and all of a sudden someone comes to him and notice what they say. They say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, remember, this is about now two and a half years into Jesus' ministry. He's done so many miracles. He's done so many amazing things. I'm wondering how common this must have been because people thinking following Jesus is pretty great. I mean, you look at all the miracles you do. I mean, this would be a wonderful thing. I'll follow you wherever you go because this is exciting and amazing. And and I'm sure that this maybe was a regular occurrence where people would come to him and say to him, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And this is a great thing to say. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But his response reveals that, you know what? First, you need to understand something very important before you make that kind of commitment to me. Notice Jesus' response. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus saying, you know, animals, they have their place, their home, and birds, they have their place, their home. But me, I don't. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And here's what he's ultimately trying to say. You've just made a statement, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, guess what? I don't have a house to go back to. I don't have the comforts of life that you're used to. Are you really willing to follow me wherever I go? So before you make this commitment, I think Jesus is wanting to see, you need to count the cost. You need to understand the sacrifices that come with placing your life into my hands and saying, I'm going to follow you? Are you sure that you're willing to sacrifice? Are you sure you understand what you're committing to? Not counting the cost of following Jesus is one of the biggest hindrances to continuing to be his disciple. You know, many people like this man, they're excited to follow Jesus. They make these bold statements, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll give my life. I'll do whatever you desire me to do. But they don't count the cost before making those statements. They don't recognize the sacrifice that comes. They don't recognize what those statements actually entail. And then all of a sudden, difficulty comes. Hardship comes. Sacrifices come. And they say, well, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought this was going to be about. And then all of a sudden, "Ah, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, when I did a two-year-long internship at Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria, One of the best things I learned from the pastors there was how to count the cost for ministry. They spent a lot of time saying, you know what, if you're going to go into a foreign country and you're going to start a church there, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes with that. There's a lot of issues that come with that. There's a lot of problems that come with that. And they prepared me to know, you know what, if you're going to do this, understand what you're doing. Understand what's coming. Don't go in there thinking, oh, this, that, and the next thing and having these delusions of grandeur or having these thoughts of it's going to be so easy and nice. Recognize it's not going to be a bed of roses. Recognize it's what it's going to be like. And they did a great job of preparing me and helping me to count the cost before going to Scotland and starting a church. And when I got there and I started doing more and more research about Scotland, I discovered something that was quite sad. The average missionary to Scotland only lasted six months. 
And as I ministered there, I saw missionaries come and go and come and go and come and go over and over again. And as you talk with some of these missionaries, and I was close to some of them, one of the things I think I discovered that was the big reason for why they would come and leave so quickly is because they didn't count the cost before coming. They didn't have any kind of clue of the sacrifice it was going to be, of what they were going to have to give up, of the difficulty of the ministry. And oftentimes they came from these big, huge churches with all this successful ministry, and they come to Scotland and they think, it's just going to be the same. It's going to be so easy. I'm just going to come and all these people are going to come and, and they're going to accept me and they're going to want me and they're going to want this ministry. And then they realize, oh no, they don't want me here. And they actually want me to leave. And it's hard and it's slow and it's difficult. And well, I'm out of here then because this isn't what I signed up for. Because they didn't really know what it was that they were coming to. They didn't count the cost, and so they stopped what they call, were called to do. So the first thing that hinders people from being Jesus' disciple is not counting the cost of following Him. Well, as Jesus shares this, another person is there, and notice what Jesus says in verse 59. He says to the person, follow me. And look at the response. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. You know, I remember one of the first times I read this, I thought, man, Jesus is super harsh here. I mean, this is cruel. Here's a guy who just lost his father, and he says, all I want to do is go bury him. And Jesus says, let the dead go bury the dead, and you come follow me and preach the kingdom of God. I'm thinking, you know, that is a pretty harsh response. But then, years later, I started to study this phrase, let the dead, uh, or let me bury my father. And I discovered some interesting things about this. The phrase, let me bury my father, did not mean your father was actually already dead. It was a concept in the Middle East to say, you know what, as the son, I'm responsible to continue the family you know, business, whatever it may be. Uh, and so I need to go and wait until my father dies, bury him, and then when all the responsibility is on me, I can choose to do what I want to do. Uh, and so he's not saying, hey, my father's dead. I just want to go to a funeral. He's saying, no, I need to go back and wait till my father ultimately dies, which could be a year from now, uh, and then I will come and follow you. And so this actually is an expression still used in parts of the Middle East. And so, you know, this person wasn't saying, Jesus, let me, you know, just go bury my dad. It's let me continue in the family business uh, until my father dies, and then I'll come and I'll follow you. You know, the man wanted to follow Jesus, but not just yet. He knew it was good. He knew he should do it, but he felt there was a good reason why he shouldn't do it right now. The previous man was too quick to follow Jesus and didn't count the cost. This man was too slow to follow Jesus and wanted to do other things first. And Jesus responds by saying, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying, you know what, I need you to be my follower now. Don't go back to the family business. Don't go wait for your dad to die. Follow me now. You want to be a follower of me? Start right now. Don't make something else more important than following me. Follow me now. I think it's interesting. Jesus wasn't afraid to discourage potential followers or disciples. He told people just the way it was. He just was very clear. You don't see Jesus like a lot of the evangelists today who just they want to sugarcoat everything, make it sound all perfect and nice so that people will accept it. But the problem is when someone comes to the Lord that way thinking, oh, you come to Jesus, your life will never have any more problems and everything will be wonderful and great. And it's like, well, I want that. Great. But the problem is that's not true. And so then when problems come, they say, well, wait a second. You said when I came to Jesus, that I wouldn't have any more issues. Everything would be wonderful and great and life would be so rosy. I hadn't signed up for this. I'm out of here. Jesus wasn't like that. Hey, you want to follow me? Count the cost. 
<laughs> Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You want to follow me? There's problems that are going to come. But Jesus was just honest. This is what it's like. Do you still want to do it? You know, notice the difference between the response of this man who says, hey, you know, basically let me go back and, and continue with the family business. When my dad dies, then I'll, I'll follow you. With him calling the initial disciples and their response to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the ones who wanted to bring down fire from heaven, uh, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Notice the difference here. Here's these guys. Jesus says the same thing as he did to the other guy. Follow me. The other guy's response was, well, you know, let me go back. Let me go, you know, be with my dad. When he dies, ultimately, then you know, we'll, we'll get to following you. These guys, right away, immediately, we're told, they drop their nets, their livelihood, their jobs. They say, we're willing to leave that for you. James and John, they worked for their dad, and they even left him. It wasn't, oh, let me continue in the family business until my dad dies, and then I'll come. And it was immediate. It was like, hey, Jesus, you want me to follow you? I'm going to follow you right now. I think too often, that's the problem. Thing that hinders people from following Jesus is they're not willing to do it now. Instead, they have some other thing they feel is more important to do first. And I hear people talk about this all the time. Lord, I'll follow you after I finish school because I'm just too busy with studying for my degree. Or, or Lord, I'll follow you after you know, I have, get married and have kids because single life right now is too much fun and I want to enjoy the party life. And, you know, I'll, get, I'll start following you, you know. When I get older, Lord, I'll follow you when I retire because I'm too busy with my career or Lord, I'll follow you after whatever it may be that you feel seems more important than following Jesus. What people are ultimately saying is in the future, following you sounds good, but not now. Now I have something more important. Now I have something that I'm going to be doing that I want to accomplish. And in my experience, sadly, most people who say this really never get around to following Jesus. There's always something. There's always something that comes up. Well, oh, I know I just said that when I finished that, I would follow you. And I know I finished that. But now there's this that I want to finish as well. And oh, wait, now, now there's this. And it just something else always seems to get in the way. And I think there's a reason for that because this is one of the great tactics of the enemy. If Satan is unsuccessful in stopping you from desiring to follow Jesus, his next thing is, well, let's just put following Jesus off. Let's just procrastinate on that one, why don't we? You know what? Why follow Jesus today when you can do it tomorrow or next week or next year? And there's always this temptation of, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, you can do that. Just, just you can do that later and you can do this now. Indulge yourself in this now and then, you know, wait to follow Jesus just a little bit later. And it's always push it off, push it off, push it off because Satan knows eventually your time's going to run out. Sadly, for many, their time never comes. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, this verse is saying now. Now's the day to accept the Lord. Now's the day to ask for Him to forgive you of your sins. Now's the day to get right with Him. Now's the day to say, I want to follow you. Because the reality of this passage is, you don't know if you have tomorrow. And that's something that we're just, especially when we're younger, we just feel like, oh, I have my whole life ahead of me. We don't have a promise of anything. We could walk outside, get in a car accident, be dead, and our life be done today. 
We have this assumption that, you know, we got tomorrow or next week or next year or years from now. But the reality is, Jesus says, get right now because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And you know what? For those who say, well, you know, I've already made a, a commitment to follow Jesus. You know, I'm already saved. And yeah, but you know what? You don't know when tomorrow is for the lost world around us. I think so often we procrastinate in reaching people the way we should because you think, why share the gospel with them today when I could do it tomorrow or next week or next year? And we push it off and we might think, I got plenty of time. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm saved. The problem is they don't. We don't know how much time they have. We don't know how much time they're going to be left on this earth to hear the truth of the gospel that we have. And too often we're putting that off as well. Lord says, follow me. Be that example of me. Share with this world the love that I have for them. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll do that next week, next month, next year. And in the meantime, there's all these people who need to hear it that aren't. And we don't know how much longer they have as well. So don't put off following Jesus. Follow him now. Well, after Jesus has this conversation with these first two people, a third person says in verse 61 and 62, Lord, I'll follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus says to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, the third person has a similar problem to the second person. The second person says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. The third person says, Lord, let me first go and bid farewell to those at my house. Notice both these guys said, First, let me do something else before following you. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, Jesus needs to be first. Following Him needs to be first. The top priority of your life needs to be Him, not something else. You know, I think a lot of Christians are worried and they think, yeah, if I make Jesus number one priority of my life, then I think that's going to mess up my career If I make Jesus first of my studies, if I make Jesus first over my family, you know, I'm going to become someone who just is poor and, and, you know, doesn't have the things that I want. I'm going to miss out on so much. You know, there's this worry of there's all these needs and all these desires that I have. And if I make Jesus first, man, I'm going to lose out on all that. Well, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus spends a whole portion of that chapter speaking about worry. And he deals with this mindset of, you know, if I put Jesus first, I'm going to lose out on all the needs that I have. And Jesus deals with, don't worry about your needs. I'll take care of them. And he finishes in verse 33 and he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. That went off. You're never going to miss out because you made Jesus first in your life. When you make Jesus first, God will take care of the rest. So this man says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to those who are at my house. And notice Jesus' response. I think it's something that's very important. He says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus here is using an illustration of a farmer in that time. And whenever you're farming and you're plowing rows to plant different things, you want your rows straight because you don't want the different crops to come and intermingle together and their roots to intertwine and, you know, it causes problems. So you want straight rows. Well, in order to get that straight row, what you would need to do is keep your eyes fixed on something that is fixed 
in the, in the distance, most likely a tree, a rock or something. And as you're plowing, usually you have some kind of animal pulling in front of you. You're keeping fixed and you're keeping that line going forward. But if you keep turning back, all of a sudden you're not focused on anything and then your lines get all screwed up uh, and you're not staying focused. You know, this actually uh, happens as well with driving. Um, you need to keep your eyes on the road or you're not going to stay between the lines. Uh, my sister is not a very good driver. And the reason she's not a very good driver is because she's a really social person and loves to look at people in the face when they're talking to her or she's talking to them. Now, that's a great thing when you're in a coffee shop around a table. Not so good when you're in a motor vehicle. And so her girls sitting behind her will ask her a question. And instead of just answering the question, she needs to look at them in the face and talk with them. And obviously, you usually don't stay between the lines when doing that. And so when I'm even sitting in the front seat next to her, kind of fearing for my life, she'll talk to me and and say something to me, and she'll look at me because she wants to look at me in the face. And I will purposely keep looking at the road and kind of just saying to her without even speaking, that's where you need to be looking because, you know, quit looking over here at me. Look there, and we can talk. We don't have to stare at each other's face to do it. But, you know, she struggles with that. So it works with driving as well. But the whole point of what Jesus is saying here, especially as you use this, example of plowing forward is you have to keep your eyes fixed forward if you keep looking back and this eye saying hey let me go you know say goodbye to my family jesus is only saying there's always going to be something that's going to cause you to look back and oh i need to go back for this or back for that and he's like you're never going to follow me the way you should if i'm not the focus if you don't have your eyes fixed on me then you will not follow me the way that you should we lose that focus on jesus We start focusing on other things, and it hinders us from following him. I think a great example of this is the life of Peter. You know, Peter did something none of the else disciples did. You know, Jesus is walking on water, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me out there. Come on out, Peter. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on water. His eyes are fixed on Jesus, and that's why he's able to do that. And then all of a sudden we're told that he looks around, and he sees the waves He starts to freak out, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm walking on water, this wave's coming. And he doesn't focus on Jesus anymore, and he sinks, and he panics, and he's, Jesus, save me. But you know, for those few moments, he actually walked on water with Jesus because his eyes were focused and fixed on him. You know, I think the same is true for us. We can do great things for the Lord when we keep our focus on him, when our eyes are fixed on him. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, as Peter did, then we usually end up sinking, struggling, and not able to cope. So the third thing that hinders people from being Jesus' disciple is not keeping their focus on Him, placing their focus on other things. So in these verses, we see two things about being Jesus' disciple and three things that hinders people from being Jesus' disciple. The two things that we learned are, first, Jesus' disciple needs to be obedient, courageous, and committed to God no matter what comes their way. And second, Jesus' disciple needs to seek to see people saved not destroyed, to treat them compassionately, not harshly. And the three things that hinder people from being a follower of Jesus, first, they don't count the cost. They don't recognize what it's going to take. Second, they're not willing to follow Jesus now. Instead, they have something else they feel is more important to do. And third, they're not keeping their focus on Jesus. Instead, they're placing it on other things. Now, as we think about this great challenge that we're given here of following Jesus in this proper way, of denying ourselves, of doing these things, I want us to remember something very important. Jesus gave his life for us. He's a perfect example of what he's asking us to do. He doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. 
And he's just saying, you know what? I want you to give your life for me. I already gave mine for you. I want you to be willing to live for me, to keep focused on me. But you know what? I'm sure all of you who have tried recognize it's hard. As we go through the Gospels, we see the disciples, they fail regularly. Jesus tells them to do this, but they don't, they're not very successful oftentimes, and that's usually our life as well. We have this desire, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. We want to do these things, but yet our flesh oftentimes is weak, and we fail to do them. And so I just want to take a moment just to pray for everyone here that God would help us to do this. It's difficult. It's hard. I recognize that denying ourselves, taking up our cross, making Jesus our priority and focus. I mean, these things are not easy to do. And so let's just ask the Lord to help us do it.